What would you think if someone handed you a book, a book they're recommending to you, and you opened it up and the first three words read, Life is difficult. It happened to me recently and I thought, thanks a lot. Why would I want to read a book that says life is difficult? (sighs) Even as a Christian, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Life is difficult. Well, we might want to read a book like that actually because it's true, right? We live in a broken world. It's broken because of sin. There's suffering. There's injustice. There's pain. There are all sorts of things that make life difficult. But also for us as Christians, we might want to read a book like that because as Christians, it's kind of a double whammy because not only is life generally difficult for all human beings, it's particularly difficult for us sometimes because our Lord Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation or trouble. So it actually could be a real friend to us to have a book that starts with, life is difficult. Because life is difficult, and sometimes it's difficult not just in general, but because of hostility. Because we believe in the Savior. We believe that you must believe in Him. We believe that He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong. And it might just very well be that we're going to take it on the chin as a result of that. Well, even though the first three words of First Peter are not, life is difficult, the book of 1 Peter, which I would invite you to turn to, is a book about the difficulties of life for the Christian. In fact, it's even been called by some a discipleship manual for the Christian life. And I like that. I want to be discipled by 1 Peter because I know life is difficult and Peter helps suffering Christians like us in some ways to be able to handle life so that we can have joy, so that we can have tenacity so that we can find encouragement and so that we can face tomorrow and so in light of the pilgrim theme uh, of the weekend facing these kinds of things uh, first peter really is about christians being pilgrims Uh, we're we're looking forward to something else we don't really belong here but in the meantime how do we do it well i hope you found first peter by now but if you're still looking for it it gives me a chance to say thank you for having me here this weekend you are a very warm congregation. Uh, I was mentioning to Pastor John how attentive you are, how engaged you are, how uh, you laugh when you're supposed to laugh because something might be funny. Um, <laughs> and it's just been fun to be here and been a joy to be here. And I'm thankful that you're hospitable. I'm thankful for your pastor. I'm thankful for like-mindedness. Uh, and it's a real treat to be here. Some congregations just have the stone face. They come to church because they're supposed to, which isn't bad. We are supposed to. Uh, but it's nice when there's some liveliness uh, and some engagement. And so I will go home refreshed, giving a good report to my boss. I mean my wife, uh, <laughs> Molly, and my family, as well as the saints at Omaha Bible Church. So thank you for that. And I say praise God for His work in our lives and in the life of this congregation. I'm not sure how far we're going to get in 1 Peter. I just know that there's a lunch deadline. So, (laughs) 
we're, we're going we're gonna to see how far we get. I have enough notes to take us quite a ways, but we probably won't get that far. But we'll have the general idea so that we are hopefully discipled by Peter. Peter who knows a lot to be able to help us. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 1, but just by way of preview, uh, a lot of times when you start a study in this book, you go to chapter 5, verse 12. And so maybe I'll just visit that with you ever so quickly to capture kind of the big idea theme. My notes are in the ESV uh, translation, and I know lots of you uh, are using the New American Standard, but I think we can talk the same talk in general. So it does say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, uh, partially through the verse, it says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then it says, stand firm in it. And I think that's a great theme verse to kind of get the big picture. He's telling us all about the true grace of God, the great and matchless grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ in His perfect work on our behalf, giving us an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away. It's the true grace of God. It's not an imposter. It's not a fake. And in light of that great theological reality, that great personal reality, the gospel reality about Christ, in his work in light of that even though life is hard and even though this is not our heavenly home in the meantime what stand firm stand firm in it because so many other things are not firm so many other things are not certain and so many other things are frightening and hard stand firm in the gospel is really the takeaway of this whole thing i hope we can accomplish a little bit of that here today discipled by somebody named peter it does say in chapter one verse one peter an apostle of jesus christ i like to say uh, in lowbrow language peter a man who knew some stuff about some things okay peter knew some stuff about some things Just ever so quickly, he's a disciple. He was in the inner circle with James and John. He grossly denied Jesus and yet nevertheless was kept by Christ. He saw the miracles with his own eyes. He witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus with his own eyes. He saw the crucifixion. He was a witness to the resurrected Christ as well as the ascension. Peter was somebody who knew some stuff about some things, right? And not only that, it does say here in our opening verse, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is one who speaks with the authority of the one they represent. And so he's not only a disciple, it's important to be a follower, but he is also an apostle. And if he's an apostle, what he says is gospel. And you know what I mean by that. It's as if First Peter's red letter, right? If you have a red letter Bible, the whole thing should be red letter because it's divinely inspired by God. But to capture the idea, what Peter says is of equal authority with what Jesus says in recorded Scripture because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I represent the King and what I say is exactly what He says. I'm a man under authority. And so I love studying this letter to learn what Jesus would want us to do even during times when life is hard. If we keep moving, it says in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. The New American Standard, I think, says aliens. 
So exiles, aliens, used interchangeable. Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I think the New American Standard goes on to talk about chosen. My translation says elect, used, inter- used interchangeably, so you'll be able to follow along with me, no doubt. That's, that, first thing we notice about that is that's a big region. That's a huge re- region. Modern-day Turkey, about 750,000 square miles. That tells us this is a pretty general kind of address. Okay? It's broad. This is applicable to lots of different Christians, not just in one particular area. And I think that helps us even to say, you know what, we can see application for ourselves. It's a pretty general kind of letter. And how does Peter refer to Christians? This is super important. Elect exiles of the dispersion or scattered ones. Aliens is who the Christians are. Now that's really important and it's fascinating because he's writing primarily most commentators would have us to believe to Gentiles to non-Jewish people so he's writing to Gentiles but he's using Old Testament language and Old Testament labels otherwise in the past used for Israel he's now applying to Gentile believers things that make you go Hmm, wonder why that's happening. That's language particularly reserved for God's people in the Old Testament. They're the elect exiles. They're the chosen people. The diaspora, excuse me, the diaspora, the dispersed ones, common term for the Jews scattered through the world after the exile in 587 B.C. So he's borrowing language. He's borrowing verbiage. He's borrowing titles. And it begs the question, why would he do that? He's talking to Gentile Christians, but he's referring to them the way the Old Testament refers to the nation of Israel. And when did, maybe to give another clue, when was this used of the Jews? It's used when they're exiled from their promised land, which would be where? Where? Jerusalem. Right? When, they're, when they're taken captive and they're exiled, they long to be in Jerusalem. They long to be in the land of milk and honey. If we could only be back in the land, back in the promised land. But in the meantime, they're called exiles. Right? They're dispersed. They're scattered. Well, what Peter no doubt is up to is drawing some similarities. We're not waiting to be back in... These people, as well as us, we're not waiting to be back in Jerusalem. But Christians are waiting to be in the what kind of Jerusalem? We're waiting to be in the new Jerusalem. So there's similarities here. He's using the language on purpose. So we can identify maybe with Old Testament Israel as they're dispersed, as they're exiled, and we can even learn from them. It's kind of like what they went through, but you're waiting for the new Jerusalem. You're waiting for the Jerusalem that the New Testament says comes from above. The heavenly Jerusalem, the everlasting Jerusalem. And so it's so fascinating that Peter uses that language so that we might understand something. So if you went home today and read the whole Old Testament, well, that would take a long time. But as you, as you, as you read about Israel being exiled, you say, huh, I could learn a thing or two about that. I'm not part of the nation of Israel. There's difference. We're part of the church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles right? All nations, not a particular nation, but we can learn from redemptive history 
to say, what would that have been like? It would have been hard. He calls them elect or chosen in the New American Standard. No doubt that's meant to, to bring comfort. The elect of God. The, the uniquely loved of God. It's, it's comforting in the Bible. It's not controversial in the Bible, even though it's controversial, controversial sometimes among us. In the Bible, so many times, predestination, election, choosing, it's in the context of, oh, Romans 8, isn't it great to know that in Christ we're safe and secure, predestined, chosen, Nothing can reverse this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even death or suffering or angels or principal or any of those things. You go, when life is hard, the doctrine of election is good. I didn't deserve it. But when life is hard, the doctrine of election is good. Well, with that in mind, we could talk a lot, a lot about that, but we won't do any more today. If you have lots of complicated questions about the doctrine of election, Pastor John will be here all day. <laughs> there you go. Plurality of elders. <laughs> but it would be a mistake for us to say, oh, if we're chosen by God, not because of what we've done, but because of His mercy, if we're elect of God, that must mean everything in this life is going to be awesome and easy. Heaven on earth, because after all, we're chosen of God. And that would be a cosmic mistake, right? That, would be, that wouldn't be the right way to think. And so it's coupled with that other reality in the here and now. So the first if super important word would be elect, chosen. Remember that. But then that important other word that we have in the opening is exiles, aliens. Oh, both are true at the same time. Both are really important. But if you only think about the election side of things, you'll say, what in the world is wrong? I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm a Christian. Why are bad things happening? Because you're not in the heavenly Jerusalem. In the here and now, you're elect, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> you didn't earn it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you're exile. You're, you're an alien. You don't belong. You're excluded. Who likes to be excluded? Who likes to be alienated? Nobody really does. Doesn't mean we don't have a home. It doesn't mean we're homeless. But this is not our home. We probably won't time, have time to get there. But Peter later refers to Babylon, using it figuratively. Okay? So I know I came to, flew into the Cleveland airport, but spiritually speaking, I flew into the Babylonian airport. Okay? And when I go back to Omaha, I'm going back to a different Babylon. We're exiled. This is not our home. We're chosen by God in Christ and we've inherited all the spiritual riches in Christ. But there's a reason why life is hard for you. Because we live in Babylon, figuratively speaking. It's in chapter 5. We probably won't go there. I'm not sure. But elect, oh, but exiles. But we're not homeless, as I said. Hebrews 13, 14, ever so quickly, says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And the author of Hebrews is clearly talking about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. But here we have no lasting city. Hebrews 11.16 it says, They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And guess what? It's not the here and now Babylon. It's the Jerusalem from above. 
We are pilgrim people on a pilgrimage, and we're anticipating that day when we are no longer exiled, but we are in our home prepared for us by the Lord. So think of it in these terms if you need simplicity. In relationship to God, and maybe I'm oversimplifying, in relationship to God, elect, chosen, irreversibly so, uniquely loved. In relationship to the here and now world, exiles, aliens, strangers. We don't really fit in. We don't really belong. And it's going to create some heartache. It's going to create some hostility. Not just because it's a broken world, but because it's an antagonistic world. Elect exiles. Maybe we'll have shirts made. Which one should be on the front? Which one should be on the back? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's alien. Maybe it's exile. But you know what's also true? Elect of God. Both things are true at the same time. That doesn't make life easy, but it makes it easier. It makes it manageable. We we can keep our, our, our wits about us. And we can stand firm as Peter wants us to stand firm. This is so helpful. I need to be discipled in this. I need to be discipled in this because sometimes I end up thinking, I end up thinking that this somehow is Jerusalem. And I forget that it's Babylon. It's no wonder things end up being the way they are. It's Babylon. What did we expect? So, when you read a book like Daniel, who's exiled, you can read it and say, you know what? That can kind of help me. None of us are Daniel, unique historic person. But even given the fact that Peter uses that kind of verbiage, he's inviting Christians, non-Jews, to learn from exiled Jews a thing or two about life and how we do it. It's fascinating, I think. Amidst the idolatry, amidst the immorality, amidst the hostility, there's a way to thrive. And there's a way to make some sanctified sense out of it. (laughs) And stand firm. Elect exiles. Given the current social climate, I imagine some of you, if you haven't already, will lose your job or miss a promotion Something bad will happen to you in a big enough group like this because you are a Christian. And some of you will have family members reject you or no longer welcome you or be hostile toward you because you are a Christian. It's happened in my life. It's happening in my life. It's an interesting time to be alive. Life is hard. What do I do? I need someone to help disciple me. I need something, if you will, like God's Word through the power of the Spirit, through the preaching of God's Word. I need some help with this stranger, alien, exile thing, but I'm still elect. It comes from 1 Peter, but 1 Peter, in a sense, is saying, also read the Old Testament. We're not them, but you can relate to some of the things they went through. I think that's super helpful. What do you think? What did you think I thought you would say? (laughs) Rhetorically speaking, right? Oh, so many days. It's like, oh no. 
Well, we're longing for the Jerusalem from above when there will no longer be any tension. Let's move on. How did all of this happen to us? All of this happened to us. We'll move on to verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it's not by accident this happened that we're elect exiles. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And foreknowledge when so many times in the Bible when it has to do with people. The idea is affection. So that's why oftentimes commentators will say the idea is foreloved. Okay? And I think that's probably the idea here. Not foreseen, but foreloved. According to the foreloving of God, for the, the, the good foreknowledge of God, the Father. That's how, why this is happening. That's why I'm elect. That's why I'm even living now as an elect exile. That should probably help me be less of a complainer. Then it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, in the setting apart of the Spirit, the unique work of the Spirit in our lives, specifically setting us apart as the elect unto Christ in salvation, because keep reading in verse 2, for the obedience to Jesus Christ. So the Spirit sanctifies us for that. He sets us apart for that unique thing, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood So even in the here and now where life is hard, the Spirit of God, according to the benevolent foreknowledge of God, uniquely, Trinitarianly, we see here, the members of the Trinity, sets us apart for distinct obedience to Christ, even though it might be hard to obey because of hostility, because we believe in absolute truth and right and wrong. That might create hostility, but you know what? The Spirit of God uniquely, according to the benevolence of God, sets us apart for obedience in this broken, fallen world. That motivates me to stand firm. That motivates me to obey. There is another way, actually, of taking that verse, and the right way of taking it is however Pastor John takes it. (laughs) I'm just here to help, not create problems. But let's... let's, We've been in like the, the... the five-foot area of the pool. It's been enjoyable. Um, We're not in the kiddie pool, but let's go down to the deep end a little bit just for a minute. And there is a different way you could translate this. Some scholars translate it this way. I wouldn't die on either hill. But interestingly enough, you could translate verse 2 as because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. Both are theologically true. We we are set apart for obedience unto Christ because Christians are supposed to obey because of what Christ has done for us. That's certainly true. But theologically, it's also true, and grammatically, you could translate it because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. I'm kind of fond of that view because it seems like the flow is because of all these things God has done for you. Well, because of the obedience of Jesus Christ credited to us so that we might be justified. I like that. That actually complements 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But both are true, and I wouldn't die on either hill. Let's keep moving in verse 2, if you would. Look there at your Bibles. And for sprinkling with His blood. More Old Testament imagery, Passover imagery. God has done this. God has saved you. The angel of death is passed over. You don't have to pay for your own sins. This is redemption ultimately in the ultimate Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you face life when life is hard? Don't forget what it means to be elect of God. Yes, you're exiled right now. Yes, you're an alien right now. But don't forget. Stand firm. 
sprinkled with his blood. Therefore, if there's the blood sprinkling, it means atonement has been made. And in the Bible, atonement leads to, starts with an F, forgiveness. Our sins aren't held against us. Oh, I need to remember this so that I can stand firm even though things look terrible in my life and sometimes in my relationships. Oh, the Trinitarian blessing of God ready for me, given to me. Verse 2 goes on to say and ends it by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. These are all points of grace. These are all points of peace with God and may it just be multiplied to you. And here comes the response. I hope, I hope you're feeling this kind of response, anticipating it in verse 3. Blessed be the God. Comes from the Greek word where we get our word eulogy. Eulogize God. At a funeral where there's the eulogy, people get up and say all kinds of great things about the person. Sometimes things that we don't even know if they're true or not. I don't know who they're describing, but it wasn't my husband, one woman said. (laughs) Well, I I digress because I want you to capture the idea. Bless God. Eulogize God because of what He's done for you in Christ and because of His benevolent love and because you're elect in Christ. You know what you should be doing? Saying all kinds of great things about God is what you should be doing. You should be praising, blessing, worshiping. And we know they're actually all true. The right response to what God has done for you is praise. Isn't it interesting that in a book that's supposed to disciple us in standing firm amidst spiritual Babylon, there's a priority on praise, worship. Put your eyes in the right place, your focus in the right place, not only on your circumstances, not just on the alien exile part, but you've been given all of this in Christ and so it is praise, bless Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt we would want to bless God if He's our Lord Jesus Christ. And He's our Lord Jesus Christ because of the foreordaining of God. He's our Lord. He's not a hostile Lord. He's our Lord. So many times there's antagonism throughout human history between lords and their people. No, He's our Lord. He's a benevolent Lord. He's the Lord Jesus, which means God saves. So He's the Lord who also saves, not hostile at all. And He's also the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate King. Even the best of kings in history. They're supposed to do what? Kings are supposed to provide for their people. They're supposed to protect their people. They're supposed to defeat their people's enemies. They're supposed to do all of those kinds of things. And yet, every single king, every single Messiah, every single Christ, because that's what that word means, even the best of them have not perfectly protected, perfectly provided for, uh, perfectly defeated enemies with perfect motives, not trying to manipulate their people. But there is one that all other messiahs, Christ's kings have anticipated. It's this one. It's this one. So we bless God because we have that kind of Christ. I like to say there have been many Christs just for shock value because sometimes we think, well, that's his last name, you know, Jesus Christ. (sighs) Now, I know none of you think that. But the reality is every king who's ever been in existence has been a Christ because 
Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah, which means anointed one. And kings were ceremonially anointed, acknowledged as the king. And so David is a Christ. David is a Messiah. He's the best of them. But all of the other kings were Messiahs. They were all Christ's. We say lowercase m, lowercase c. But isn't it amazing that we have the Lord. He's ours. He belongs to us in a positive way because we belong to him. He's our Lord Jesus, ultimate Messiah. He will even deliver us from the final enemy who is what? Death. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, I believe. This is exciting. This causes me to maybe see straight. Oh, I I don't like being exiled. I don't like being away from the promised land, the ultimate promised land. I've got so many problems because I'm not at home. We talked about about it yesterday a little bit. When you travel away somewhere, it's so nice to get home. And There's no place like home. Why is it that we always want to get away? And then once we're away, we want to get back home. And it's like, oh, I love home, right? And then you travel outside of the country, maybe somewhere dangerous where you have to bribe people to get things done and all this sort of thing. And it's scary and you're uncomfortable. I'm just like, I just can't wait to get back to my country. I think that helps us to identify. As I mentioned yesterday, I'm just reminding you and telling you, some of you who weren't here, it reminds us of what it means to be exiled, alienated, dispersed. This is not our home. We're not, how about this too? I'm trying to cover everything today, John. <laughs> We're not trying to make Babylon Jerusalem. So that's important. It comes from above. So until it does come from above, you know, I want to make Babylon as good as it can be. Don't get me wrong, (laughs) right? Even Jeremiah talks about praying for the good of Babylon, which is pretty weird if you think about it. Pagan Babylon? Jeremiah encourages people to pray for the good of Babylon because it's where he is. I want Babylon, Ohio, (laughs) Omaha to be as good as it can be. I care about my neighbor. I love my neighbor. I care about my family. I care about myself. I care about a lot of different things. And so I don't mind spending some time sprucing up Babylon. But, and so I vote the way I vote. I do things the way I do them. But I know that I'm not trying to make Babylon Jerusalem because it has to come from above. Elect exiles. We eulogize God because He's our Savior. He's our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's taking care of our greatest need. And He's helping us maneuver in the here and now. Isn't it interesting that Peter's helping us by giving us theology, by giving us doctrine. So many times we end up thinking, I know it's not the case in this congregation, but so many times people say, well, just, why do you just teach us more doctrine? Why do you just teach us more theology, more about Jesus, and more about salvation? You've got to talk to us about election. What does that have to do with my life? Could you give me some practical tips and practical preaching? That's exactly what Peter's doing, right? The most practical thing imaginable would be to know how great it is to be in Christ, to be chosen of God, not because of what you've done. And he's going to get into the, more of the details. That's actually what I actually need. Because that's actually what's going to help me to face tomorrow to to do this pilgrimage better. That's what I actually need. The theology ends up giving me the practical so I can maneuver life. Okay, let's keep moving. It says in verse 
three, according to his great mercy, we haven't deserved it. We deserve condemnation, but he's been greatly merciful to us. Then verse three says he has caused us to be born again. How about that? Wow. He's caused us to be born again. We're blessed of the Father causing us to be born again. That could be a great theological study that we won't do today. But it's all of grace. It's absolutely amazing. It's humbling. We're not like, oh, look at us. We're elect. I'm a Christian. No, He's caused us to be born again. So bless the Father as a result of that. Then if we keep going, it says in verse 3, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Don't miss that. Don't miss how exciting that is. So here we are and we're facing hostility like Peter's audience is to one degree or another. Here we are facing hostility of all different kinds, one degree or another, here in our Babylon. As we, and it might even, at worst, it's going to do what? It might mean our life. It might mean they actually kill us for being Christians. Which has happened plenty throughout the history of Christianity. It's happening to a high degree in other countries. I doubt it will happen to you, but it could. How do we cope? How do we manage? How do I stand firm? Maybe it'd be easier to compromise for the sake of my life. But the call we learned in chapter 5 is to stand firm in the grace of God. And so if we stand firm, what, what if they kill me? Oh, how about, to, verse 3 again, to a living hope. Hope in the Bible is never like hope in our current culture. Like, I hope I win the lottery. Pat, you have to buy a ticket to win. I know, but I still, I hope I do. Even if I haven't bought a ticket, I mean, I, I, I hope so. I hope things work out okay. I, I, I hope I, I, I see all my kids to grow up to have, I mean, all these hopes. I hope I graduate. I hope, I hope, I hope. And our hope ends up being like hope in hope. It just close your eyes and, you know, it'd be a desire. The Bible doesn't speak in those terms. It absolutely doesn't. Hope into a living hope through the... Ah, here's why we know it's not hope and hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope, a synonym is confidence. Confidence about certainty. And I'm not making that up because you can see it in the context. Our confidence about certainty... Because of resurrection. And it's not this. Please get this. It's not, I hope to be resurrected someday. Wouldn't it be nice if there could be resurrection? I hope I could be resurrected someday because I hope I, my good works outweigh my bad works. No, it's a confident certainty regarding the future. Why? Because of something that's already been done by another. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he's raised from the dead, not only for himself, because he's righteous, he's raised from the dead for his people, right? If you're in Christ, if you trust in Christ, you too will be raised. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's, it's an amazing reality. So when Christians talk about hope, I almost don't even use the word hope very often because I know what unbelievers think I mean. I hope so. Uh-uh. Christians have a certain hope we have a confidence about the future and that ultimate confidence is no matter what, absolutely, positively, Pat Abendroth will be raised from the dead. Because Pat is a good guy. No, that's not it! <laughs> right? 
because I have a Savior who's been raised from the dead, and so you could even take my life. But I have certainty about the future. Wow, I can live a better life as an alien, as a stranger, as an exile, even with hostility against me, because I believe there's one true and living God. I believe that His Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the ultimate authority of Scripture alone. And the things I've been saying, people, some of you are like, yeah. And more people are saying, no. People who aren't here. I think God created Adam and Eve. Oh, that offends me. I believe what Jesus said, that it's been, it is as it's been from the beginning. God created male and female. Oh, you know what? I'm going to stand firm in what's true. Even though I'm living where there might be hostility because I'm in Babylon, not Jerusalem. Worst thing they can do is take my life. I have a confidence in the future and it is certain. Isn't this great? The problem is going to be we're going to leave today and forget it before we even take our first bite of lunch. Hopefully that's not the case by the Spirit of God's help. But you know what's going to happen is next week, you're going to hear the same thing from a different text. (laughs) And I'm going to need to hear the same thing from a different text whether I'm listening or preaching because it's one of the means that God has given us to be able to be discipled in remembering what's true about being elect even though you're in exile because I forget so easily. I forget so easily, easily. but I think as a man under authority, I think we have a little bit more time we can talk a little bit more about more text. It does say after that, verse 4, to an inheritance. Oh, so I'm an alien. I'm a stranger. I'm exiled. But I have a certain hope. Also, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger. And this is spiritual Babylon. But you know what? All along, I have an inheritance. And inheritances are great. I recommend that you get one if you can. (laughs) I've inherited couple of times someone else's wealth and it's nice the only problem is i think the last inheritance i received my wife got a got a new suv or maybe it was a year old but it was really nice and i'm certain that today it's in the junkyard because she put two hundred thousand some miles on it and we traded it in and maybe got like four hundred dollars See, the problem with our inheritances, and it's nice to have an inheritance, really is, they don't last. And if it lasts, you don't last long enough to enjoy it if it lasts. But we know, let's keep going in verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled. It can't be tainted. It can't be corrupted. It could never be in a junkyard. (laughs) It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So its value is maintained kept in heaven for you this is huge it's safe it's secure it's why we eulogize god and it's why we can face tomorrow even in babylon verse 5 says who that would be the born again ones who are elect exiles who by god's power so not our own or archbishop so-and-so brother whoever by god's power are being guarded present tense, being guarded right now through faith in Christ. If we want to be technical, it's a present passive. You don't need to know that to get to heaven. 
But it's a present passive, so you're not guarding it. It's being guarded for you, but it is currently being guarded through faith in Christ because you're a Christian. So how great is that? You might lose everything. You might not get the promotion. You might truly lose your job. It might mean being devastated in so many different ways because you're standing firm, because you're a Christian. You have an inheritance that is more secure than Fort Knox. Right? Last time I checked, that's where the U.S. stores most of its gold. 5,000 tons at last check. Behind a 22-ton door. It locks using a combination entered by at least 10 different staff members. None knowing any more than their own part of the code. But you wouldn't get even close to the code from what I read anyway because of the Apache helicopters, tanks, fences, guards, concrete lined granite walls, and alarms all surrounding the facilities. It's a good image. Your inheritance, eternal life, ultimately is what that is. With all of the blessings and all of the honors and privileges of being in the family guarded right now by God, not you. It just got a little bit easier, maybe a whole lot easier for me to do one more day, at least if not a week, in Babylon. Got something greater. Got something greater. And then it's kept for what? How about verse 5 as we go on? For a salvation, for an ultimate deliverance. That's the idea. We already have salvation, but it's going to be the ultimate deliverance for a salvation ready. Ready to be revealed in the last time. We've been delivered, but we're waiting for that radical, ultimate, final, climactic deliverance. And it's so certain, it's already. I'm not experiencing it in the here and now, but it's already. As one of my friends, Scott Clark, says, 1 Peter is about eschatology. It's about the end. It's about the end time, the final end time. All this is kept for us. It's certain and it's ready. But it's not here. Because this is not the new Jerusalem that comes from above. It's a, how about this? It's about the end being true now for your current joy. I can bless God and I can eulogize God and, and, and I can do this. It's already in that sense and it will give you joy now, but it's not already being experienced by us here and now. We're not, we're not a bunch of people in denial. Oh. We're not Christian scientists. Death is not real. Sickness is not real. We're not that, which is neither Christian nor science, right? As one, one of my mentors like to say, it's like grape nuts. <laughs> it's neither grapes nor nuts. Okay. So, right, so, so Christians, aren't, Christians aren't those kind of people. Suffering is real now. Death is real now. Hostility, persecution, all of those things. Heartache, depression. All of these things are real now. But what can help us knowing what's reserved already prepared for us safe in heaven 
that doesn't take it, all of my problems away, but it helps me. It helps me to stand firm. He does say in verse 6, in this you rejoice. Oh, that's right. I don't rejoice in my appearance. Oh, maybe relatively. We, let's, let's go rejoice lowercase r. There is relative rejoicing. I rejoice uh, in my appearance when I look better than I did on other days. Uh, I rejoice in relationships when they're good. I rejoice in possessions when I have them. I rejoice in savings when I have it. I rejoice in my family when things are going well. I rejoice in politics when my person gets elected. I rejoice in philanthropy when I can give things away or things are given away. I rejoice in my hobbies. I rejoice in sports. I rejoice in the sports of my kids. Made it state basketball as a freshman, thank you very much. We rejoice this year in my family. I rejoice in health. But those are all relative rejoicings. Those, those are good gifts from God we can enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. But in this we rejoice. Capital R. Ultimate rejoicing is not found in these things that are temporary and passing. We rejoice in the things that are going to last forever. And it might even help us to enjoy the other things a little bit more appropriately for the glory of God. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, and if you're going through trials, it must be necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Certainly that is the case. So that, verse 7 says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ah, it is a book about eschatology. I was taught in preaching classes that you always want to leave wanting the people to want just a little bit more. So there's more to be said, but we're going to close. Father, thank you so much for today, and thank you for the fact that though we have not seen Him, as 1 Peter 1.8 says, we love Him. And we are thankful that we love Christ because He loved us first. Help us as we think about being pilgrims, as we enjoy the ups and downs of life, Help us to remember that we indeed are chosen. We are elect of God according to His sovereign grace. But to remember that this is not our ultimate home. And we long for that home. We long for the day when our faith is sight. We long for the day when we see Christ and we're made like Him. There's no longer any injustice. No longer any suffering. And we know that that can only happen with the return of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be anticipating that for the glory of Christ and for the good of our neighbor and for our own personal joy. In Jesus' name.